this episode of the ESG Beat, we will hear from William Savitt, the co-chair of the litigation department of Wachtell Lipton. William is one of the leading corporate law thinkers in the country. His practice increasingly involves advising corporate directors on how to incorporate ESG considerations and stakeholders into the board's decision-making process. Today, we will discuss the seminal Delaware Chancery Court decision in the Caremark case, which defines how directors can be liable for failures of their oversight duties. We will delve into current Delaware cases interpreting the Caremark doctrine. We will discuss the promise of Caremark, the limits of Caremark, and how Caremark duties relate to the board's oversight of environmental and social risks. Welcome to the ESG Beat, William. Thanks very much. Great to be here. So today I'm looking forward to discussing the past, the present, and the future of the Caremark doctrine and Delaware law on the board's fiduciary duties to oversee risk. Can you start by giving us an overview of that doctrine? Sure. Happy to, Amelia. Thank you. Uh, Caremark, the Caremark Doctrine is called the Caremark Doctrine for the case in the late 1990s that introduced it into Delaware law. It was a, an unusual decision by uh, the late and great Chancellor William Allen, who uh, was a, just a tremendously thoughtful and nuanced scholar of the corporate law and who's responsible for so much of what is modern and effective in Delaware jurisprudence. It was a funny decision because it came up in the context of a settlement conference involving the company Caremark, which was uh, in, in the, the medical services and products business. And I know from some of the lawyers who were there that none of them had any idea what was coming. It was supposed to be a routine settlement, but Chancellor Allen started asking a lot of questions about what the precise fiduciary breaches were and what, what corporate law doctrines were implicated and then wrote an opinion coming out of what the party thought was a routine settlement conference that announced a new framework for considering a new species of fiduciary duty, which has now come to bear the name of the case, Caremark duties. And the chancellor's essential insight in, the, in that decision was that with respect to certain fundamental enterprise risks, directors have a fiduciary duty to ensure that the company has some sort of monitoring and oversight function, such that if what the courts have come to call red flags, that is to say evidence of, of violations of law or compliance, or yellow flags, which are the suggestions that compliance failures might be possible or likely, there'd be some way for the company to know and respond. And a failure at any kind of monitoring or oversight function with respect to legal compliance could be thought to be a fiduciary duty. This was new with the Caremark decision and indeed changed the law from what it had been up to, up to the time and has grown in the ballpark 25 years since it was, since it was announced from the bench. As you know, there's a debate, um, particularly among the academic community, with respect to where Caremark draws a line between legal risk and business risk. Where do you draw that line? Where do you see that? It's of course the obligation of corporate directors in Delaware and in all of the jurisdictions of the United States to manage their companies by the lights of their best business judgment on, a, on an informed and unconflicted basis. And that remains the principle. It remains the principle with respect to matters of, of compliance. Nothing in Caremark is designed to overthrow or alter that essential premise. And with respect to business risks, 
corporations sensibly allocate resources to attend to some, uh, attend less to others, run certain risks, solve for other risks, get out of certain business lines that are risky, invest heavily in others that may be risky or not. And that is typically all subject properly to the business judgment rule and therefore not, the, not a fit subject for liability under any branch of Delaware law, Caremark or otherwise. The complexity comes in uh, for, on, on, a, on, a number of, on a number of different bases. One is that as originally announced and, has, and, and, has, and as it has been mostly interpreted, Caremark was understood to say a corporation needs to have a system to comply with law. That is to say, it was about the legal compliance function. You can't have a company that doesn't take account of whether it's breaking the law or not with respect to key risks. You can't have a company that isn't paying any attention to whether it's complying with applicable rules and regulations. That's what Caremark was about. And it wasn't about business risk. It was about attending to legal risk. Now, sometimes the line is often very close and much Caremark litigation involves, for example, violations of the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is where legal risk and business risk intersect. This is a circumstance where the company's doing business abroad, uh, it is engaged in corrupt activity, that corrupt activity is exposed, and that gives rise to legal risk because the company has to pay a fine for the FCPA. That's one example of very frequent uh, Caremark exposure. I believe it was what was at issue in Caremark itself, and it's been a frequent, frequent point of, of Caremark litigation since. But properly understood or historically understood, it's when the business risk becomes a legal risk that Caremark is, is most acutely involved. So my next question is, Caremark is obviously a very high bar to clear from a legal perspective. There have been very few cases that have resulted in actual liability for uh, corporate directors. But Regardless of that, in your practice, has it still resulted in increased engagement by the board on risk oversight? Yes, um, it really has. And that's not simply because of the threat of liability. This is one of those areas of law where it really is useful to consider that legal rules, fiduciary duty rules serve two functions. One is liability creation, but the other our conduct. The other is the idea of a conduct rule. And before Caremark, there was no way for a lawyer to go in front of a board and say, you might want to engage in foreign corrupt practices, and you might find that it's even profitable, but you can't do it because you're, you're breaching your duty. And this has allowed lawyers to counsel boards in a really sticky situation the necessity of avoiding potentially value maximizing activities because it violates the law. And before Caremark, without Caremark, there'd be no basis to give that advice. You'd be left with the simple maximization principle, but it's a guardrail that allows lawyers to advise boards and it allows boards comfortably to take decisions that are in the best interests of society as well as the company, even though it might not work out on a strict risk reward perspective to the company. And that observation highlights an interesting tension in the law of Caremark, which is that it, it is in dialectic with the rule of stockholder value maximization. 
it may well be that it would be profitable for a company to take the risk of non-compliance in the United States, abroad, anywhere, that the cost of non-compliance, even recognizing the legal spend of defense and the potential fines, it's still gonna generate more value for stockholders, for the company to engage in non-compliant, legally non-compliant activity. Caremark is the reason that boards can't do that and they can be instructed not to do that. It gives boards comfort, even in the context now happily receding, where it was thought to be the corporation's only objective to maximize stockholder values. Caremark gave an offering in the interest of society facing legal compliance for boards to do the right. That is uh, such interesting insight. And I'm excited to explore with you um, the overlap between the ESG function and the compliance function under Caremark. But we'll get to that in a moment. First, what I'd like to do is to bring us to um, the recent past. There's been, there was an increase in Caremark lawsuits. Um, so uh, these really fell into three categories. Um, Me Too movement uh, triggered a failure to oversee the risk of sexual harassment. And it was even broader than that with um, plaintiffs alleging that the board had a duty to oversee the risk of a toxic culture. And so cultural risks came into play. Then of course there's um, cyber risk and there's been a number of lawsuits filed under Caremark uh, alleging that boards have failed to oversee the risk of climate change. And then the third category are cyber risks. And all of these cases were, were settled or dismissed, but there, there has been an increase in the number. So my question is, how does this change impact how the board is viewing its own duties to oversee these risks that clearly go beyond legal risks? And what about the gray areas between legal risk and reputational um, and business risk? How is Caremark impacting, uh, evolving to address that those gray areas? I think the only fair answer to that excellent question is we don't know yet. The jury is still out. Uh, the best reading of the fiduciary duty cases applying Caremark and its progeny still say that a Caremark claim, an oversight and monitoring claim, is properly addressed to the compliance function and not all business function, the legal compliance function. Caremark the, has not yet been endorsed by the courts as an overall, you've got to look after stuff doctrine. However, that is the purpose to which it is being put by many in the stockholder plaintiff's bar. And whether that, that momentum will take hold is very much an open question. The Caremark Doctrine, just as you say, Amelia, has, has become a vehicle for plaintiffs, stockholder plaintiffs, to object to corporations who it, by their lights, engage in conduct that has adverse externalities, whether it be sexual discrimination, sexual harassment, whether it be climate change, whether it be the creation of, of, of toxins, pollutants that are not, not sustainable. And one understands why uh, plaintiffs would go there. It's a very controversial move. 
Uh, it's controversial for a number of reasons. Uh, the, the, the first and simplest, and I think the one that is most often ignored, is that Caremark does not make any sense as a doctrine designed to create redress for corporations' externalities to society. Why do I say that? I say that because the beneficiaries of a Caremark claim are not society. The beneficiaries of a Caremark claim are the stockholders. In fact, broadening of the Caremark doctrine could create perverse incentives for corporate conduct. I say that for this reason. If, a corpor if, if, if stockholders know that their corporations can exceed appropriate conduct, and if it goes well, they will be rewarded by an increased stock price, and if it goes poorly, their losses will be redressed by a Caremark claim, it actually undermines the entire incentive structure that Caremark is designed to implement. And it's, it, it, I, I, I go on this digression because notwithstanding much of the recent case filings, it doesn't make any sense to think of Caremark as a fix for corporate externalities. To be sure, we need to be attentive to corporate externalities. And this is why ESG is so important. It's why the principle of corporate purpose is so important. It's why stakeholder governance is so important. It's why the new paradigm that my firm has been sponsoring is so important but it is not the office of Caremark. And the simple reason is that the beneficiaries of Caremark aren't society at large, but the very stockholders who benefit from the externalities. And, and, and you might then wonder, well, why do plaintiffs keep bringing these lawsuits? So that, that, that is, is one branch of, the, of my response to your question. Um, a, a second branch is to observe that certain aspects of things like climate change and, and Me Too violations do implicate violations of positive law or violations of compliance, though uh, those are the exceptions, not the rule. That is to say, climate change litigation, while it is coming, has not yet established clear rules for what, what the violations are. And most, most climate change, most climate change uh, Caremark suits aren't about violations of rule, they're about pollute, about externalities. When, when the shoe fits, stockholder plaintiffs ought to wear it and courts will. Now, the doctrine has been expanding, uh, but usually these sorts of, the, the complaints are complaints about harms to society that aren't stockholder facing and don't quite. So Bill, let's go to the present moment with respect to Caremark. What are you seeing in some of your cases? Of, of course, understanding that you, you you have to talk about them anonymously. Right. Well, I'm happy to say a few words. And some of the cases we're handling are public. Some of them are, are non-public. And I can also say a little bit about situations that we're observing elsewhere in the, elsewhere in the field. Uh, the, the headline answer, Amelia, is that we're seeing a lot more uh, uh, Caremark activity. Caremark suits being filed and books and records demands being made upon corporate uh, defendants that are seeking to build a Caremark case. We are seeing these suits across the economy. Uh, we are seeing it in the context of the crisis that we're living through. We're seeing it in the context of more long-term secular crises we're living through, things like uh, climate change, uh, issues like persistent income disparity, issues uh, including uh, persistent racial disparity, issues like um, the creation of a more violent military world across the board. 
And this relates to some of the themes we've been talking about, which is the idea in the hands of the plaintiff's bar that Caremark can be used as the vehicle to voice social concerns. It's a complex argument, which probably will coexist only with great difficulty, if at all, in the framework of Delaware law. And one of the reasons I say that is we have seen situations where plaintiffs are complaining that companies have profited too substantially from their businesses abroad, for example, or their other interactions with the world or the marketplace, such that they're performing too well and their stock price is too high. What conceivable damages could a plaintiff claim like that? It's very difficult to see. And it is further evidence, along with the point we were discussing earlier, where do the damages flow, that illustrates that stockholder plaintiff's litigation is not the right vehicle, even in the guise of Caremark, to cause corporations to redress social wrongs or to behave more responsibly. There's an important role for the corporate form and corporate actors to achieve that, as much of the work you're doing and some of the work we're doing together involves. Caremark's probably not the answer. Bill, now let's turn to a recent Caremark case, the Marchand case, also known as the Bluebell case. Can you give us an overview of that case and why was that case so significant? Happy to, Amelia. It's a very significant case. I think it was decided uh, last year by the Delaware Supreme Court. The, the, the essential facts boiled all the way down um, are not especially complicated. Bluebell is an ice cream company. Uh, located or principally operational in the southern, the southeastern part of the country. It, its products were implicated in a listeria outbreak that sickened many and tragically killed several people. The company suffered substantially economically. It had to defend a tremendous amount of litigation and ultimately had to accept an extremely uh, unfavorable equity infusion that had the effect of significantly diluting the value of the equity investment of the incumbent stockholders. A Caremark claim ensued. And the, 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 here again, boiled all the way down and in plain rather than legal English, the lawsuit said, you all run an ice cream company and all you do is sell ice cream and you sold all this ice cream and you got all these people sick and some people died. That is a failure of oversight. The company moved to dismiss. And in its motion to dismiss, the company argued uh, very much in accordance with the case law that while there had been a corporate trauma and while that was exceedingly unfortunate, it didn't rise to the level of a Caremark violation because a Caremark violation requires an absolute, in the language of the cases, utter failure have any compliance or monitoring function. And the record before the court argued the plaintiffs didn't allow the plaintiffs to sustain that pleading burden because there was some evidence that there was uh, a function within the company that attended to internal compliance and Food and Drug Administration rules and regulations, such that while there may have been suboptimal standards, while the company probably could have done better, the, and from a the perspective of a conduct rule should have done better. The legal standard here, the liability standard, the utter failure standard was not met. And the trial court, the court of chancery dismissed the lawsuit on that basis. The plaintiffs appealed to the Delaware Supreme Court, which reversed. And that is the decision that caused much of the controversy. And 
the Supreme Court essentially said, agreeing with the plaintiffs, what you have here is a fundamental enterprise risk. And that seems non-controversial. After all, it was an ice cream company, so making sure its food was safe is not too much to ask of Concluded that it was reasonably foreseeable that a failure of compliance could be very harmful to the company's prospects. Here again, not a controversial determination. But then said the plaintiffs had adequately alleged a lack of a lack of adequate controls and utter failure because whatever else was happening, it wasn't operating at the board level. And this is what struck many observers as the interesting new piece of the Bluebell case, that it was requiring not just a compliance function within the company that could identify red flags or yellow flags, such as inadequate compliance in the freezers and production facilities of this, of this ice cream company, but also a requirement that with respect to key enterprise risks, there be a board level monitoring function that would be visible to and arguably overseen by the board. Uh, a reasonable debate can be had whether that constituted a new law or application of old, but a strict understanding of the utter failure standard would have been hard to allow the, the claim here to proceed. That's why the trial court dismissed the case. And this told many observers that in today's environment where companies face tremendous reputational risks from scandals like this, where it has devastating results on stockholder value, and where importantly corporations are increasingly expected to be responsible corporate citizens, there was a new, a new dimension of potential care mark exposure. Whatever one might say about whether the case was new law or not, the plaintiff's bar has certainly seen it as new law because there's been a huge upsurge in filing since then. And there've been a couple of cases at the court chancery in the wake of Bluebell that have survived pleadings, motions, and circumstances that hitherto one might have expected to have been dismissed. So it seems to have marked, if, if not a turning point, at least an inflection point in the, in the, opening, of the opening of the gates for more care mark litigation. Okay, so drilling down a, a bit more into uh, the context of the Bluebell case, um, there seems to be a confluence of Caremark and ESG, and we've touched upon this um, already, but how do the board's duties under Caremark overlap with its duty to see environmental and social risks, even when there are, isn't a legal violation per se? Thanks, me. It's a great question and a tough one. I'll start by answering your question. And then if I remember, I'll move on to answering a different question. The, the question you've asked is, in what ways do they overlap? And I, I think the best way to think about that, at least the way I think about it, is they overlap in the following. ESG principles ask companies not to behave badly. And Caremark is a legal doctrine that tells companies not to behave badly. They are two doctrines, two approaches to corporate law that share in common the idea that corporations shouldn't act badly. That's a, at a very high level of generality, but, but it's important because corporations aren't always known for being the most moral creatures. In fact, it's not even clear that they're supposed to be moral creatures. And these are both doctrines that have a moral overlay. Don't abuse. Don't take advantage. Don't harm third parties. You will be answerable in Caremark if you do, at least under one reading of Caremark. And you will be criticized by people who urge ESG considerations if you do. 
So what they share in common is the idea, the impulse that when corporations create certain sorts of negative externalities on society, it's a bad thing and needs to be policed. The, the Caremark Doctrine approaches this objective, the avoidance of negative social externalities ex post by the imposition of liability rules that compensate stockholders when their directors violate social rules in ways that harm the corporate interest, the stockholder value. ESG principles are designed to address the same considerations, indeed a broader range of considerations ex ante by creating education and incentives and investor sentiment and ultimately potentially legal rules, uh, certainly disclosure rules that will cause companies to behave in a more socially responsible manner. So there really is a lot of overlap um, in, in these two doctrines. They are, however, and this is to answer the second question, the one that you didn't ask, uh, I think there are senses in which the two doctrines, similar as, they are, similar as they are, are often conflated. And here I'll just echo some of the points, conflated improperly, and here I'll just echo some of the points I made a little earlier, which is uh, Caremark is not an all-purpose vehicle to police things that go wrong when people behave badly. It's designed to create a conduct rule for directors to allow them to ensure that there are appropriate monitoring, effect, uh, monitoring uh, devices in place and to police the most extreme among them. And it's important that it is a rule that is not generally applicable, but only very, very rarely applicable because it, one can't have a regime where corporate boards are responsible for risks that don't rise to the level of enterprise risks that aren't properly the subject for monitoring because you would, you would hamper the corporate enterprise, the corporate form, so as to deprive it of much of its utility. Uh, ESG, on the other hand, is uh, much more broad-based and is not tied to principles of decline in stock price and is not an appeal to fiduciary duty, at least not in the first instance, but the best way to organize a company so as to integrate the interests of all of its stakeholders, including, importantly, employees, including, importantly, communities in which companies operate, including importantly, society at large and the environment that affects society at large. There's a lot of overlap, uh, some important differences, and important to keep in mind that they are different, though occasionally allied principles. That's a very helpful framing and um, articulation of the difference between Caremark and ESG. And I agree with you that these concepts are being... Con I always like to end the ESG beat with a magic wand and a crystal ball. So if I hand you a magic wand, what changes would you make to clarify the board's duties uh, under Caremark or the board's duties more broadly to oversee risk? I think it is, my magic wand would be to articulate a clear rule that a director can follow with recognition that an overbroad rule will be value destroying. Uh, it is easy to look to the law of fiduciary duty to cure all of the ills in corporate law, but the, it's, it is an overburdened beast, the doctrine of fiduciary duty. And I think this is, this is a burden it can't bear. Um, I, I, I say that because much of the work of ensuring corporate compliance with social needs and avoiding externalities is best done by regulation. I know it is frustrating 
frustrates me, and I'm a defense lawyer, that society and the political systems can't seem to do that work. There is a vacuum. There is a vacuum of the regulation of negative externalities. But to look to the simple law of fiduciary duty to fix it is asking more than that branch of the law can bear. And that is why I think it is very important to write these rules clearly so that expectations are clear. And that puts appropriate pressure on directors to do what they must. And Caremark has been providing that function for a generation now. This uptick in Caremark litigation probably asks more than it can bear. And the trouble with that is, it lets everyone else off the hook. It lets investors off the hook. It lets government off the hook. It puts it all on six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 men and women who are boards of directors and cannot do it all, cannot be expected to do it all. And that's a mistake. So my magic wand would be to have clear limits on its exposure so as to hold directors accountable for what is theirs and hold others accountable for what is theirs as well, including importantly, the investor community and government. Okay, so what about the crystal ball? Where is all of this headed with respect to director duties? What do you see? I, I see everything that was in my magic wand coming, uh, not coming to pass. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what we're going to see is a continuing failure of the political system to responsibly regulate the negative externalities of individuals as well as corporations. Uh, I, I think I perceive a likelihood that, as is so often the case, when the political branches cannot regulate problems that are becoming obvious, the judicial branch steps in and resolves problems of substantial social import on a case-by-case -case basis, a patchwork of decisions that is often highly suboptimal, highly inefficient. I, I don't think this is a calamity. I do think it's an inefficiency. We are lucky that there is a robust and mostly very sensible body of corporate law and good judges who are going to oversee it. And the rules, I think, will stay smart and sensible. And they will they are unlikely to veer unduly erratically in one direction or the next. But the, the best way to solve for that, uh, I think, is not regulation, which I think is often imprecise, overbroad, and I think highly unlikely to happen anyway. The best solution and the best way to get to the best result is for the investor community to strike a bargain with the board community and the political community to manage corporations better and ensure in directors their confidence to manage for a broad class of interests, including stakeholders other than stockholders. Not in derogation of stockholder interests, which is always keen and may, and in many circumstances would and should remain paramount, but to recognize that without employees, without a usable environment, uh, without a, a reasonable economic system that, that has reasonable boundaries of, of income and education equality, uh, there isn't going to be there isn't going to be a profitable society, no matter what. I think that's possible, and I know you're working very hard on that. And it's a pleasure to be your partner in some of that work. And I think that's the right place to be investing if we're to avoid uh, either inaction or massively and massively inefficient. Thank you so much for your insights today, Bill, and thank you for joining us on the ESG beat. Thank you, Amelia. It's a pleasure.
I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.